Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, historic preservation efforts in Eatonville, Florida, will be discussed at the Black Communities Conference in North Carolina. I remember the late Mr. Frank Otey and other people saying, NY, PEC cannot just say, you don't want the road. That's not going to work. You're going to have to talk about alternatives. We'll look at aerial photographs of Central Florida taken in 1930. It wasn't until 1881 that Monroe first came to Florida, and it was actually because of kind of an interesting relationship with another famous American author, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And we'll talk about the use of buckshot in the Seminole Wars. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you line it? Oh, shaka, laka, 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 laka. <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Today, most people are familiar with the work of writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston and the historic significance of the town of Eatonville, Florida, but that wasn't true 30 years ago. In 1987, the town of Eatonville celebrated its centennial as the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States. That same year, community organizer N.Y. Nathiri attended a public hearing about the proposed widening of Kennedy Boulevard into a five-lane road. Listening to the discussion, Mrs. Nathiri realized that the project would destroy her historic hometown. The first thing that came into my mind was, this is a classic community-busting road. And the implications of it being a community-busting road were that the historic significance of Eatonville would be destroyed because from Political Science 101, I remember there are three ways that you destroy a community. You either remove a school, you remove uh, houses of worship, or you insert a highway. And this was literally textbook. The problem, of course, was that the way process works, the public hearings were pro forma. The staff had already determined what the recommendation was going to be to the county. We didn't realize that, of course, and by the time that the commission hearing, which again was very cynically placed in terms of time, Edenville had completed its um, centennial celebration. The hearing was the Monday before Thanksgiving, the beginning of the holiday season. You know, no, no one's going to pay attention. Even if you are concerned, it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, you know, it's, it's New Year's, uh, so it's a fait accompli, psychologically as well as illegally. The Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community was organized to fight the destructive road project and save the historic community made famous in the books of Zora Neale Hurston, including her novel Their Eyes Were Watching God, her anthropological work Mules and Men, and her autobiography Dust Tracks on a Road. 
The group formed a coalition with their predominantly white neighbors in Maitland. I became a reluctant spokesperson, and I remember the late Mr. Frank Ote and other people saying, NY, PEC cannot just say, you don't want the road. That's not going to work. You're going to have to talk about alternatives, and your alternatives can't be emotional. So immediately that meant that we were um, engaging with planners, with engineers, uh, looking at the technical case for the road. What was the technical case and why was that flawed? That was one part. And then the other part was, what is this about historic Eatonville? What is it about Eatonville that is special? If you can imagine, in 1987, and this is not an exaggeration, the decision makers, the opinion shapers, in other words, white Orange County, had not heard of Zora Neale Hurston. They didn't know Zora Neale Hurston. They did not know that name. As a matter of fact, about this time, there was an alcoholic beverage that was being developed or promoted called Zima. So we had to make sure that the is Zora, Zima. I mean, what is this? You know, it really, in some ways, it was funny, but funny, but not funny. So our case was two-pronged. One, to say that there was no technical reason to improve the road. And then the other was, but don't you know about Eatonville and Zora Neale Hurston and the fact that this little town is historically significant? I mean, do you know that? And so that was our job. As part of a public awareness campaign, the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, under the direction of N.Y. Nathiri, organized what is now called the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. By the fall of 1988, we were planning for the first Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts because we knew we had to educate the public. So many of us came out of the education field, but we couldn't be pointy-headed intellectuals. We, we wanted to let the public know about the historic significance of Eatonville and about Zora Neale Hurston, who really a lot of people know about Zora Neale Hurston even though you may not know about her, Central Florida. And so we had to make that case. And the way that we said we could do that was by a festival of the arts. And we were very intentional about this. Public programs, exhibitions, in other words, ways to pull the, the general public in to let them know. And so that is what we did. And again, not realizing what we were doing, or the impact of what we were doing, all of this was occurring before people talked about ecotourism, heritage tourism, cultural tourism. Those phrases were not a part of the lexicon of tourism. And when we organized the first festival in 1990, we had 10,000 people coming to this little community. Those are not exaggerated figures. We literally were able to count. And not only did we have that kind of number, but all of the, the names that you would want to have, the late Miss Ruby D, Dr. Robert Hemingway, her literary biographer, um, Alice Walker, who at this time was a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist of the, the Color Purple, but the big thing was that The Color Purple had become a movie, and so everybody knew about The Color Purple. You know, though, there were those of us who said if this was just a book, it would not have been the impact, but the movie, and she had agreed to come. And we'd also done a call for academic papers. We had 55 scholars to respond. 
PEC continues to present the annual Zora Festival and benefits the community by operating the Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts and the Excellence Without Excuse Computer Arts Lab. It took 10 years for the organization to get Eatonville designated as a National Historic District, but their persistence was rewarded. We had the ability to really bring to bear a constituency's voice, not only at the federal level, but at the county level, because of course it all sifts down. So you have, we have a way, we have a way of actually processing. But yes, you do have to be persistent, absolutely. And the reason that persistence can work with government is that as long as you stay focused, Government can't stay on your issue by itself. It's got too much to do. It, I mean, this is really the case. As long as you are laser-focused and your case is credible and you keep moving and you are able to continue to expand the public discourse, yes, with persistence, you, you, it, it really is the case in terms of public. Private money, however, can get things done very quickly and can do a lot of damage. We saw that happen in Eatonville with, uh, with some initiatives. But in public, yes, persistence, yes, passion, and if, you've got, and if you can make the good case, you have to stick with it. While Eatonville has historic significance as the oldest incorporated African-American municipality and the home of Zora Neale Hurston, the town does not have many historic structures. Joe Clark's store with its lion porch does not exist, nor does the house where Hurston grew up. This lack of historic buildings caused difficulties for NY Nathiri and PEC at the state and national level. We, as a, a, as a community, I mean, we were serious about historic preservation. As a matter of fact, I mean, that's who we are. That, that is who we are um, a, as an organization. Yes, historic preservation, cultural arts, community revitalization, but ultimately, that, I mean, that's who we are in our essence. And we would go to the National Trust for Historic Preservation meetings religiously every year. And when you're saying, you know, trying to find ways, how do you make the case for Eatonville? How do, how do you let people know the importance of Eatonville? I mean, we, we would take a delegation of maybe uh, four people and um, Mrs. Ernestine McWhite, uh, who was on a board president and on our board for years, uh, my mother, Ella Dinkins, uh, May St. Julian, uh, myself, typically that would be the that would be the four. And when I say we would work the halls of this, of the National Trust, I, I, we met with um, Dick Moe, who was the president. I mean, you know, the the people they they knew the people in Eatonville uh, because, frankly, there weren't a lot of African Americans who were attending the conference. And this is before the National Trust developed what they called these um, diversity scholarships. In other words, we were paying our way, and I and I want to say to you, I, and I and this is with some some respect, the National Trust knows how to really extract money from you. You know, if they knew how to charge you for air, I mean, they were really very good at um, it was excellent professional training. But what I'm saying to you is that we were investing some big time dollars for an organization that you know really wasn't well funded. But of course, we were, we were paying, um, each person paid their way, and I think that the organization uh, you know, took care of, of me as a staff. But the bottom line is that it did take us 10 years to actually make the case that even though Eatonville may not have had 
built environments, buildings, that there was a case to be made in terms of the criteria to be listed on the National Register of Historic Places. A panel of scholars and community leaders will be discussing historic preservation efforts in Eatonville at the Black Communities Conference in Durham, North Carolina, April 23rd through 25th. Oh, the rooster chewed a backer, the hand dipped a snuff, the bitty can't do it, but he struts his stuff, shove it over. Hey, 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 oh, can't you line that? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a ah, can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? Yeah, I'm a woman walking across the field. A mouth exhausting like an automobile. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line it? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? The captain got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad. Shove it over. Hey, hey, can't you line it? Shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a can't you move it? This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. The 2018 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium will be held May 17th through 19th at the Hyatt Regency in Sarasota. The theme of the conference is Under the Big Top, History, Culture, and Architecture. The event will feature dozens of presentations and roundtable discussions on a wide variety of Florida history topics. Special tours will include a visit to the Ringling Museum of Art, the Circus Museum, and the unique Catazan Mansion, a trolley tour of historic Sarasota, and a boat tour. There will be a screening of the 1952 Cecil B. DeMille film, The Greatest Show on Earth, which was partially shot in Sarasota. Featured speakers include Sarasota historian Jeff LaHerd and architecture expert Harold Bubiel. Dr. Ryan Duggins from the Bureau of Archaeological Research will discuss the recently discovered 7,000-year-old Pond Cemetery, which is submerged in the Gulf just south of Sarasota. The 2018 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium in Sarasota is three days of history and culture that you don't want to miss. Registration for the hotel and the conference is now open at myfloridahistory.org. That's myfloridahistory.org. I'll see you there. I am the eye in the sky, looking at you. I can read your mind. I am the maker of rules, dealing with fools. I can cheat you blind. And I don't need to see anymore to know that I can read your mind. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, you have some fascinating photographs here from 1930 showing Orlando and the surrounding area. Yeah, that's right, Ben. We're looking at a bound photo book of about three dozen uh, black and white images, uh, really nice, uh, well-done, well-framed prints of the Orlando area. And these were taken by Otto Roach. He was a photographer actually out of Colorado. 
Not exactly sure why he was here, probably for some kind of promotional situation. He may have been selling land or working for a land company. Um, so a lot of these photographs may have been featured in uh, promotion material going forward into the 1930s. The, the book was donated to the society in the 1980s, and it really is a, a great snapshot of the Orlando area uh, from the air. If we start out, the, the book actually begins right over downtown Orlando, and it's uh, pretty recognizable. We're looking at here this first photo is Lake Eola, uh, and you can see some distinctive buildings, including the churches that probably what, what pop out first, churches that, that still exist today. Uh, the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Chapel is here as well. A lot of the commercial buildings have now been torn down, but a series of them actually still exist today. One of the other interesting features that stands out uh, are the railroad lines. Uh, the, the railroad was still a, a major part of Florida's infrastructure. A lot of the uh, commercial production that occurred in, in Florida uh, was really in part due to the railroad system crisscrossing the state. Um, so that was a big part of the landmark um, that we would see throughout this part of Florida. Um, you can also see here on Lake Eola what would become now the famous uh, bandshell that, that's uh, located in downtown Orlando. The beginnings of that bandshell was actually a dock. Uh, featured here out into the lake. Um, you'll also see a lot of trees, uh, the residential areas surrounding downtown to the to the east and partially to the south. And there are various angles too. This was great. You know, Otto spent, uh, must have spent a lot of time, this is probably several trips, flying around really just downtown capturing uh, really what life was like here on a clear day in 1930. Yeah, these are fascinating images of downtown Orlando, uh, but there are also photographs in this collection of, of other areas around the city, right? Well, that's right, and I think that's probably what makes this so fascinating and so unique. Um, one photo that jumps out in particular is Tinker Field. This was the uh, famous uh, baseball field that was actually constructed in the in the teens. It was modified in the 1920s uh, and was in operation, was used by a lot of Major League Baseball teams for spring training. But on this particular day, the field was not being utilized for baseball, but rather for football. Uh, this is an early uh, football game that was happening in, in 1930. And there's a crowd of at least a few hundred people here, but you can clearly see see some of the cottages that were in the background. You can see the uh, the fences around the, the property. And you can also see in, in really great detail the grandstands, uh, which for this time period were, were fairly large and seated about 1,500 people. You'll also notice all of the cars parked in the parking lot are early 1920s era Model T Fords and Model A Fords and things like that. But we also have a number of other towns. Some would later incorporate into cities. Some were already cities, including places like Lockhart, uh, which was at this time probably primarily a lumber town. Uh, and you'll see in this photograph that uh, the rail lines come into Lockhart, and it really is just centered around the lumber mill. That was the big commercial operation and was so in 1930. We also see towns like Umatilla. Here we have Winter Park. Uh, and of course, featured in the series of Winter Parks, you can see all of the lakes, but you can also see Rollins College. Um, some really great photographs of Rollins College, one of the earliest uh, of the uh, institutions of higher learning in Central Florida. Um, we also have Sanford, which was one of the other larger cities in um, in central Florida, and it was uh, founded, of course, back in, in the 19th century. But by this time, agriculture was still really the primary commodity. And there's a great shot here simply showing the celery fields. Sanford was known for, for many, many years as uh, the center of, of celery production in Florida. And here we have a great shot really showing as far as the eye can see um, celery fields. But something else that stands out in these photographs, now we're talking about agriculture, are the orange fields. And every single photograph in every town 
down that we go through the three dozen photographs, you can see at least a small, one small square of citrus trees uh, that were being grown. This was the key commodity in this part of Florida, especially the, the beginning of the, the 20th century. Citrus really was still king. Um, that was the reason that a lot of people moved to Central Florida. They were involved in that industry. And it was really the major uh, economic engine, at least of, of Central Florida at this time. Now, Central Florida had a land boom in the 1920s, but by the time these photos were taken, the economic outlook had changed. Yeah, that's right. This photo album really captures Central Florida at the end of an era and the beginning of another era. So this is really the end of that, as you said, 1920s land boom period. And that period, uh, that growth was responsible for what we're looking at here. A lot of these commercial buildings were constructed. A lot of these towns sprang up in the 1920s, or at least expanded during that time period. But in 1930, uh, all of that rampant uh, land speculation had collapsed. And Florida as a whole was hit relatively hard. Central Florida was as well. In 1929, there was also a uh, infestation of a type of, of fly that was eating a lot of the citrus and killing a lot of the citrus trees. So there was a lot happening uh, that was tearing down all of the progress that had occurred in the 1920s. So in the 1930s, uh, Orlando was, was hit fairly hard in most of Central Florida during the Depression period. And it really wasn't until the Second World War uh, when the military started moving in, building up air stations and military training bases that the economy began to improve. So if people want to see these photographs, they can find them online, right? That's correct. The entire album has been digitized. You can search through our online card catalog at, uh, at our website. Um, and you can also see some uh, great photos on our web extras. Uh, you'll also find on our website. And it shows a lot of these images in greater detail. Great. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. The use of buckshot played an important role in the Seminole Indian War. Quentin Murray, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this report. I traveled to the Museum of Seminole County History. There, I was fascinated by an object on display in their Seminole Wars exhibit. It is a small metal ball, not unlike a bearing ball that has been damaged and weathered over time. It was the ammunition used during the Second Seminole War this ammunition would come to be known as buckshot. I sat down with Dr. Barbara Gannon from the University of Central Florida to learn more about this artifact. Well, the key is you use buckshot because a musket, a smoothbore musket, doesn't have a ride range. You use buckshot because the idea is for it to inflict a lot of damage. It has a shock factor because the buckshot goes in different directions. So the ball might go in one direction, but then the buckshot scatters. And the idea is you either shock people or you may not kill them because uh, buckshot has a slower velocity than the regular shot. But you'll certainly damage them and you'll discourage them from attacking you. Or if they attack you and you injure a lot of them, they'll have to retreat. 
The use of buckshot during the Second Seminole War would create physical trauma that would have a lasting impact. Yes, I mean, it would be. Um, if, if people come to you at a block, it creates more woundings, though, than deaths. And it's really a matter of velocity. They did tests on it to see what the downside of buckshot is. And when a bullet goes slower, it causes less damage. It can't go right through you or break bone. So it's more likely to cause non-death injuries. But that is an advantage if all you want to do is discourage people from attacking your fort. When you injure someone too, someone else has to pull them off the field. And that's two people you've taken away. Furthermore, this physical trauma would be accompanied by widespread illness. What's interesting about most campaigns like that is battlefields are kind of your smallest problem because you're in this environment with a lot of disease. If you looked back at American soldiers of this time period and you could even poll them or even just looked at the statistics, your biggest problem is disease on and off the battlefield because that's what's going to kill you mostly. Not only did the buckshot have serious physical consequences, but we should also imagine the psychological factors. Well, I would say you would use it in Florida and in the kind of campaigning you did here with a lot of trees and such because you don't have a wide or long field of vision. So you would use it in scenarios where it's not like a European open field battle where you're fighting simultaneously against an enemy you can see coming from far away. You can't see the enemy coming because it's because of the overgrowth. You would use it to try to discourage people who were closer to you and you would fire on them and cause more damage. You might as well do that since the nature of the terrain is there's not much clear terrain to have a heads-up battle. We have to understand that the Seminole Indians also used buckshot, but their tactics differed from the U.S. military. Well, the U.S., as I said, you're basically this is close order fighting. Uh, you're not planning because you're not going to be very effective from far away. So the tactic of the Americans would be, and this would be a primarily defensive, so that if the Native Americans came near them, they would either kill them, wound them, or at least scare them and send them away. The Native Americans, I'm sure, as they usually do, try to avoid heads-up fights with American soldiers. They will always do this until they outnumber them, and there's very rare conditions where they do that. So most Native Americans try to fight a ambush or running battle. They don't try to meet American troops face-to-face -face or straight up. Dr. Gannon tells me a lasting impact that the buckshot would have on the battlefield. The first thing they'll do is they'll have a percussion cap, which means you just put the cap in place and it fires that way. There's just a cap that creates the spark. The next real step will be when you go from smooth bores to rifled muskets, when they figure out how to make ammunition that can expand to embrace the grooves on a rifled musket barrel. And that way, they'll be more accurate and you can hit people from much further away. That's the Civil War rifle, which can hit someone, you know, two, three hundred yards. This is only really good at 50, maybe 100 yards because of the fact it's smoothbore. It doesn't have rifle grooves to make the bullet go in a tight spiral and be more accurate. Sometimes, like the American army might have gotten them from an armory, but you sometimes people used to make them themselves. They probably got it from an armory. There are armories like in Springfield, 
and eventually there'll be an armory in Harper's Ferry. Uh, that's why they had John Brown attacked Harper's Ferry, because there was an arsenal there. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Quentin Murray, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can also watch the television series version of Florida Frontiers. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.